Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for match. Hello and welcome to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and this episode, we're continuing our chronological path through Zatanna's publishing history, which brings us to 1971's World's Finest Comics, issue 207. The thing about this issue is Zatanna only appears in two panels, and she doesn't have any dialogue. It's barely a cameo appearance in the Superman and Batman story, but it is an appearance nonetheless. The simple thing to do would be to spend two minutes explaining her panels just in the context of the story, give a thumbs up or down to the art, and move on to her next appearance. But I have never made podcasting simple for myself. So instead, I will review this Superman and Batman adventure with the same scrutiny I'd give to any other Zatanna story. But why stop there? Why not bring in a guest who knows a thing or two about Superman and Batman team-ups? And so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, the host of the Superman and Batman podcast, Mr. Michael Bradley. How are you, Michael? I'm all right. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here. Uh, Superman and Batman, those are kind of obscure characters, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Did you ever have trouble finding new content to talk about? Once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) You don't think you should have gone with somebody with more name recognition like Cyclotron? Well, I heard there was already a Cyclotron podcast out there, and, you know. How did it get started? How, How did you find those two guys? Why did you latch onto them? Well, uh, Superman has long been my favorite character, and I did a Superman podcast, and that kind of fell to the back burner. And uh, while I was doing the Superman podcast, I also started up a Batman podcast uh, with my friend Michael Kaiser. And then that one kind of fell to the back burner as well. Just, you know, coordinating two people's schedules can be uh, a problem for an extended period of time. So I was looking for a new podcasting project, and I was reading through some old comics one day, and I happened to read A World's Finest Issue, and I thought, huh. There's a good idea. <laughs> so I started looking at Bat- Superman and Batman team-ups, and that's how the podcast came about. Cool. Very cool. Um, well, as this is nominally a Black Canary and Zatanna podcast, the story that we're going to cover notwithstanding, uh, any thoughts on either of those two characters? I don't have a problem with either character. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a fan of, of either character. Um, I just haven't read a lot of their stories. Uh, most of my exposure to both characters comes through guest appearances in stories I have read or in Justice League books. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Folks, we are going to take a short promotional break right now. When we come back, Michael and I will tell you the story of how magic nearly destroyed Superman and Batman in World's Finest 207. Don't go away. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, 
They're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. World's Finest 207 has a November 1971 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Pool and Chicken, the actual on-sale date was something like September 9th of 1971. The 48-page book cost a whole quarter, and for that you got three stories, the lead feature starring Superman and Batman, a backup story starring Tarantula, and a reprint of an old Strange Adventure story. The cover by the legendary team of Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson shows Batman tied up helpless as two men stand over the lifeless body of Superman, whose body shimmers with a strange pink light. One of the men tells Batman they used magic to kill the Man of Steel, but the Dark Knight will get his the old-fashioned way. All right, Michael, what do you think of this cover? Well, I am a huge fan of Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. I'm a big mark for both artists. And all the figures look good on this cover. There's just not a lot about it that grabs me, which makes me sad to say. There's not really a, a focal point, and the, the black background with no details is pretty heavy. It's just not one of their most memorable covers. Yeah, I agree. And there's a lot of weird sort of disparate elements about this. You've got yeah. Superman on the ground sort of glowing with his energy, while Batman is tied up with this weird kind of netting. You know, they, they both look very, very different. The two guys that they're facing, one of them is dressed in a cowboy hat and bandana. <laughs> He's holding one. While the other one looks like a G.I. Joe green shirt from the cartoon with a hat. So it's like, okay, are these army guys? Are they cowboys? Is this a theme gang or something like that? Right. It's just, it's a little bit different. It's good. I mean, just the Swanderson song, uh, Swanderson team, they knew what they were doing. They were good artists, so the figures look good. But yeah, I agree. There is something just a little bit missing from the cover. Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but I feel like there are elements to the story that would have been a better hook for the cover than this. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a good segue. So let's get into this. The story, titled A Matter of Light and Death, is written by Len Wein, penciled by Dick Dillon, and inked by Joe Giella. If you don't have the original issue, you can read the story reprinted in the Superman Batman Greatest Stories Ever Told collection, the Tales of the Batman by Len Wein hardcover collection, and the Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest Volume 20. At an abandoned gym in Metropolis, a killer-for-hire named Sly and two of his partners meet a well-dressed man who offers them a briefcase full of cash. The target he wants killed is none other than the last son of Krypton himself, Superman. But if that request sounds crazy, it's nothing compared to the identity of the well-dressed man, Clark Kent. 
Sly refuses the assignment, considering it impossible to take down Superman now that there's no more kryptonite on Earth anymore. Clark corrects him that Superman has one other weakness, magic. Sly's gang doesn't believe in magic, but Clark says he can prove it exists. They challenge him to do a magic trick, like, say, disappear right before their eyes. Clark utters some words that sound like a magic incantation, and then he vanishes. The spot where he was standing now occupied by the floating words, I shall return with the magical anti-Superman weapon tomorrow, the same time. Clark then flies through the air all the way to the North Pole and punches through a mountain to uncover the Satan Staff, a powerful magic relic capable of defeating Superman. Clark then takes the Satan Staff back to Metropolis and hides it under a boulder so he can deliver it to Sly the following day. Walking back through the park, Clark suddenly jolts as if he's come out of a dream. He has no memory of how he got to the park or what he's been doing all night. This is the third time he's had a blackout of this type. His memories are foggy, but he thinks he might be involved in a plot to kill someone. Needing an answer to this mystery, he goes off to find the world's greatest detective. In Gotham City, Batman drops down on a group of criminals and takes them out with little effort. Superman arrives, wraps a steel girder around the four crooks Batman took down, and flies them to police headquarters. Then he comes back and tells Batman about his blackouts the last three days. He worries that if he doesn't find out what's going on, he may end up killing someone soon. Batman agrees to help. The following day, Clark Kent goes about his normal routine, filing news stories, reporting on events in Metropolis, general stuff. Batman shadows his every move while in various disguises, such as a janitor, a hippie, or a random person on the street. That night, Clark returns to his apartment at 344 Clinton Street. Batman is waiting for him and reports that Clark did nothing unusual all day, but at that moment, Clark seems to go into a trance. He lashes out, striking Batman violently, and then leaving. A groggy Batman comes to and follows Clark into the night, having put a miniature tracer in his jacket. Clark brings the Satan staff back to the gym for Sly and his murder gang. He tells the gang how the Satan staff works and where they can find Superman to kill him. He tells them to bring Superman's body back to the gym when they finish the job. Then he disappears. While Sly Sly tries to remember why Clark looks so familiar, the Batman crashes through the skylight. The Dark Knight beats up Sly's men, but Sly himself uses the Satan Staff to create a magic net and captures Batman. One of the men is about to execute Batman when Sly stops him, reminding him they're killers for hire. They will kill Batman when they've gotten paid for it, not until then. Then they leave to go get Superman. They find him at the Metropolis Planetarium, where the Man of Steel is working on a massive Zeiss projector and planning for a special exhibit of his home world of Krypton, complete with artist interpretations of native Kryptonian animals. Sly and his gang attempt to sneak up on Superman, forgetting his super hearing. But before Superman can grab them, Sly uses the Satan Staff to blast the Zeiss projector, knocking the thing down. The destruction of the projector pisses off Superman, but Sly's next target with the magic staff is a painting of the Kryptonian leech lizard. The magic staff brings the creature to life, and a fully formed giant leech lizard, an animal with the power to siphon off the life force of its victims, attacks Superman. Superman struggles in vain to free himself from the leech lizard, but the creature is too powerful. The Man of Steel collapses, apparently dead. Sly uses the Satan Staff to cast the monster back into the painting. His men confirm that Superman must be dead, he has no heartbeat or pulse. Merely killing Superman isn't good enough for Sly, though, so he encases Superman's body in solid amber to take along as their trophy. Meanwhile, back at the gym, Batman regains consciousness. He's still wrapped in the net, and when he sees Sly and his gang return with Superman's body encased in amber, the Dark Knight detective pretends he's still out cold. 
Sly expects to be greeted by the man who hired them with the rest of their money, only it's not Clark Kent who shows up, but rather the villainous Dr. Light. One of the men recognizes Light as a villain who constantly tries to kill the Justice League of America. Dr. Light plans to take credit for killing Superman once he finishes paying Sly and his gang what they're owed, but Sly isn't interested in the money anymore. He wants to keep the Satan staff, and when Dr. Light objects, Sly is ready to use the magic weapon against him. Unfortunately, Dr. Light is just a little better at the double-cross thing, or at least he's quicker on the draw. He whips out his light gun and blasts Sly and his men, reducing them to nothing but photons. Dr. Light reaches down to pick up the Satan staff, but Batman, who has freed himself from the net, grabs the doctor's wrist and takes the wand. Batman says he watched Dr. Light kill three men and admit to at least helping to kill Superman. They circle each other, and finally, when Batman feels like he has Dr. Light in the right position, he tries to blast Light with the Satan staff, but the light bolt emitted from the staff has no effect on the Master of Light. Dr. Light takes the Satan staff and teleports away, but Batman is alone only for a moment as the massive chunk of amber begins to vibrate, and then crack, and then explode as Superman bursts from his cage, alive again. Superman asks what happened. Batman tells him he knew Dr. Light wasn't really there, just a hologram, when he grabbed his wrist and didn't feel a pulse. When Batman used the Satan staff, he was really blasting the amber-encased Superman, reversing the spell that killed Superman before. Now that they're together, they can track down Dr. Light. At least that's Batman's plan. But Superman tells his friend to sit it out. Superman can track Light's weapon using a photonic trail that only he can see. And besides, he hasn't really accomplished much so far this adventure. In his, in his secret villain lair, Dr. Light marvels at the Satan Staff, a magic weapon based on light properties that he himself discovered. He explains that magic, real magic, such as the kind used by the maid of magic Zatanna, gives off a faint light energy. While Dr. Light was watching one of Zatanna's magic shows, he absorbed the light energy into the Satan Staff he created. Light then recalls how he vowed to kill Superman, but, learning from the mistakes of his past, took a less personal approach. He used his powers to tune into Superman's brainwaves and planted subliminal suggestions in his alternate identity that Superman was out to kill him so that his alter ego would take appropriate steps to kill Superman first. This all makes total sense. Now, at last, Superman is dead and Dr. Light is free to, you know, be a bad guy. But Superman isn't dead, of course. He tracks the photonic trail to Dr. Light's base held up within solid light of the Aurora Borealis. Superman smashes through the wall and uses his heat vision to melt the Satan staff. But Light still has the gun that emits light of the Red Sun variety. It begins to weaken Superman, but drawing on his reserve strength, the Man of Tomorrow breaks through the floor to escape the red light, then flies around behind Dr. Light and knocks him out. After Dr. Light's lab is destroyed and the villain incarcerated, Clark, Ken, and Bruce Wayne celebrate their victory by taking in the magic act of their friend Zatanna. Watching the show, Bruce wishes he knew the secret of her powers, but Clark says that secret was nearly the death of him. All right, Michael. <laughs> There's one page in there that's just like a giant exposition dump. Yes. I didn't realize as much when I was reading it until you started doing your synopsis, and it really kind of all came to the, the front there. Uh, what did you think of the story overall? 
you know, in in very simple terms, this issue has a lot of great things. It's got a great hook or mystery from the start with Clark Kent wanting to kill Superman. It's got a reason for Superman and Batman to work together, which I always enjoy. You get a guest appearance by, well, you get a cameo, I guess, by another hero in Zatanna. And then you get the main bad guy as a villain who's not normally associated with either character. You get a montage of Batman being a detective and going in disguise and as a hippie and a random passerby and, and various things. And you get Superman fighting a giant monster, which is also always cool. Yeah, these are all good things. What'd you think of it? Um, it's very, it sort of straddles the silver and bronze age line. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of crazy. You have to do a lot of uh, suspending your disbelief. But if you can do that, which I think you should if you're going to read Superman and Batman Adventures, there is a lot of fun in this. I did like the fact that the villain ended up being Dr. Light because his more modern appearances starting around the time of you know Identity Crisis notwithstanding, I like him as a villain. I've always liked his look. Uh, I like his gimmick. But he, his plots are always way too complicated by half. <laughs> like, Rob Kelly and I ended up talking about a Justice League of America story on the Fire and Water podcast one time where Dr. Light, he had this weapon that basically gave all... He, it could give all of the Justice League members amnesia. It could take all of their memories away. So what did he do with this? He basically like scattered them so that Green Arrow thought he was Bruce Wayne and Green Lantern thought he was Ray Palmer and they just they just <laughs> had mixed identities. Like if you have that kind of technology, don't do it for that reason. Don't use it. And this is the same one. Like why does he have to hire these other guys? Why is yeah. he using this like if you have this power to kill Superman, do it yourself. One of my favorite moments in the story is there at the end where the Satan staff has been destroyed. So he pulls out the light gun, which I'm sure he carries with him all the time, and fires the red sun rays at Superman. And then thinks to himself, huh, maybe I should have done this to begin with. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, and that is one of my favorite, that climactic moment. Because I like it because Superman actually does what I always want him to do in a situation like that. Where he's being attacked, he's being weakened. Hey, you know what? The Flash might be considered the fastest man alive, but Superman is really damn fast too. Yeah. Just run around the the guy from behind. <laughs> Just go out one way, come back behind him before he can see you and knock him unconscious. And he does that. And that was like, I was like, yes, touchdown. That's what I always want Superman to do. Yeah. Um there were a few other things, and, and one other thing that I thought maybe you would know. Like, they mention in the beginning of the story that at this point in Superman's history or the publication, Kryptonite wasn't around anymore. Like, all the Kryptonite had been destroyed. Like, had you. Does that jibe with your knowledge of his history? Yeah, in the Bronze Age, um, when Julie Schwartz took over as editing on the books, they sought to bring Superman's powers down to a more, quote-unquote, realistic level. I mean, he was still infinitely powerful, so it, what good that did, I don't know. But um, but then they got rid of the kryptonite because that was being... You know, in Silver Age, you had, like, red kryptonite and green kryptonite and purple checkered kryptonite and infinite varieties of kryptonite, and they, they, tr- they tried to scale all that back, again, to give Superman more realistic threats to fight on an issue-to-issue basis. Yeah, all right, that, that explains that then. Um, and I, I did like that they used something that is is an appropriate threat to Superman, like mm-hmm. magic. And I like that that gives the characters an excuse to be together, because I like seeing Batman and Superman team up, but it always raises the question, why? 
why are they together? What would bring me, like, why does one need the other? And right. this is a good case where Superman and Clark Kent are embroiled in a mystery, and he mm-hmm. can't figure this out on his own, so he needs a detective. And I also thought it kind of gave an example of, of Superman at the beginning of the story, you know, he's. Before he calls Batman there, he's he's depressed and he's having these thoughts and, and not really sure what to do about it. And it gave Superman a conflict and a problem he can't just solve by punching something. Mm. I mean, I mean, ultimately, he does solve the problem by punching Dr. Light in the face. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying on that. Right, right I do, yeah. Um, there were a few times where I I really liked the prose that Len Wein gave. And a lot of these stories can be overwritten. I've already said this plot is way too complicated. But like on page six, the first time we see Batman, uh, and he's diving down on these guys, I just like the opening like sort of caption. It says, After midnight, among the savage streets of the jungle known as Gotham, where two-legged animals find themselves cornered by the masked hunter of men they call the Batman. I love that, just a, a, as a text piece. That's a great descriptor to open up that chapter. It's a really action-heavy page, too, on the, yeah. on the artist. I'm sure we'll talk about the art later, but it's a very dynamic page. Right. Actually, yeah, that's, that's a good way to get into the art. What did you think of Dick Dillon's work? I really liked it. There was a lot of dynamic pages and panels, and, and both characters look good. And like you said earlier, the story kind of toes the line between Silver and Bronze Age, and I thought the art did, too, in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I thought the action parts were, were really strong. Uh, like you said, like the, the scene where Batman has taken out those guys, that's a good page. I like the layouts. I like his work. Uh, I like the scene when Superman is fighting the leech lizard. That, yes. that monster looks terrific. Um, it looks great. It looks like it's a serious threat to him. Yeah, like the, everything about those were really, really good. Uh, and he really looks like he's straining against it at certain points, which mm-hmm. is also nice to see. Yeah. That's the thing, and I've mentioned this before, like, I don't know if Dick Dillon is ever anybody's like all-star favorite artist, but I just think he's like really super reliable. He was always—I mean, he he worked on the Justice League for over ten years, I think. Right. And he was just—he was good. He was always dependable, and that seems like kind of a backhanded compliment to call an artist dependable, but it really isn't. I mean, he he was good, and I always liked his version of Superman, except for a few times when I thought he made Superman's head too big. But that's not an issue in this story. Well, there was always a certain level of quality with Dick Dillon. Mm-hmm. You know, he may never have hit the heights of Neil Adams or right. Jack Kirby, but when you read a Dick Dillon story, you knew you were going to get a certain level of quality. Right, right. And as, again, as this is nominally a Zatanna podcast episode, uh, he draws, he makes her look good. <laughs> she's she's in two panels. Very long legs. Very long legs in the fishnet stockings, which I like. Uh, she's just in two panels. It's interesting at first that Dr. Light goes to a magic show. And he's kind of like stalking Zatanna and takes her magic, which apparently magic emits light energy. Like a I was going to ask if that had ever come up before. No. Or since. No. Okay. No, it doesn't. It's like, it's this weird thing where it's like, yes, of course, magic has this weird scientific thing. It's like, no, then it's not magic. <laughs> it's, it's just a, a thing for this story. And then at the end, after they've solved the case... Superman and Batman were like, you know, that actually sounds like a good idea. Let's go watch Zatanna make, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat or something. Right. It's it's fun. One thing I thought was kind of weird for a Superman and Batman team-up story is that there's a certain point in the story where Superman just tells Batman to stay put while he goes <laughs> off and finishes the problem. Yeah, and I, I kind of get it. It doesn't feel like the norm for a Superman and Batman team-up, right? but it almost feels like the most natural thing, where Superman would like, I'm going to go fight the supervillain who has a base in the Aurora Borealis. <laughs> I think I can handle this one, Batman. 
<laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, I guess. I mean, it, I don't know what Batman would bring to the table in that situation. He's um, Batman, Ryan. Yeah, that's, that is true. He's my favorite hero, so why would I second-guess that? But it is one of those things It's like, yeah, you know, play to your strengths. Yeah. Batman solved the mystery. Superman punches out the bad guy. So, and thus you have the basis of a good <laughs> Superman and Batman story. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But no, it was a fun story. I mean, it wasn't a, a deep one, and probably not one that I would necessarily list on the greatest Superman and Batman stories of all time. In fact, I was kind of surprised when you said it was reprinted in that trade. But mm-hmm. you know, I don't need a deep. I just don't need that in every comic I read. It's it's a good self-contained story, and it can be entertained for twenty-four pages. And sometimes that's all I need. Were you disappointed that Superman and Batman didn't try to kill each other in this story? Yeah, you know, that is what makes for a good Superman and Batman story, when they're at each other's throats, so. Yeah, I figured, so. That was a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you, I'm with you. (laughs) Same page there. I love these characters. Uh, Batman is my favorite character. Superman is somewhere between top three, top five. I I like seeing them together. I like seeing them work together as friends, Uh, so... It they just really... work so well together when they shouldn't work together because they're they're so different from from their origin to their power set. Everything about them is so different, but yet they just work together so well. They are wonderful foils for each other. They mm-hmm. accentuate what is different, and they both bring out, I think, the best in each other. Yeah, and that's why I mean, one of the reasons I mean, I could have it would have been easy uh, and certainly much easier for myself as a podcaster to skip over the story to just say, "Hey, by the way, Zatanna showed up for two panels doing." her magic act but she didn't say anything in this story and go on but i read this story and i was like this is fun i want to talk about this with somebody (laughs) so so i appreciate you coming on to do that uh any sorry i mean i know i don't think any of your shows are active right now but what any projects that you would like to plug before you leave or any old podcasts that you would promote um yeah none of my podcasts are are what you would call active at this point they're all still out there on the internet if you want to go find them um i am doing a couple like smaller kind of blog projects if you don't mind me plugging those um they're all kind of small but one is there's a facebook group i've started or facebook page i started just called the stack and whenever i read a comic book i just post the cover and sometimes i i get a little snarky and post comments about that i've been doing a justice league project for the past couple years where i've been reading through all the post-crisis justice league and right now i'm in the 90s which has kind of been a slog uh, I, it not, I'm not quite to the Morrison stuff. I'm still in that like weird kind of bad period of the Justice League in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, it's kind of slowed down a little bit there. But anyway, I post the covers, and sometimes I get snarky about those. It's just a fun way to add a little bit of comic book to your news feed if you want to like the page. Mm-hmm. I'm also the content provider for a site called The Daily Superman, which is actually a sister site to The Daily Batman, which is run by my previous Legend of the Batman co-host, Michael Kaiser. Um, and there, the idea behind those sites are that every day we read a Superman or Batman story and then we post a panel from it and it's just a way to kind of chronicle the history of both characters and then my most recent thing I've started is a Twitter feed called Super Hearing. Um, I started a re-listen to the Superman radio serial from the 40s, which I absolutely love. Oh, yeah. And I am attempting to summarize each episode in one Twitter post. <laughs> so um, I just started it. I'm only, depending on when this comes out, I'm, I'm less than a month into the radio show. But uh, I, I love the radio show so much and Bud Collier and everyone else involved with it. And that's been a lot of fun. Wow, that sounds really, really cool. And then um, 
I've been extended an invitation to be a regular guest on a podcast. Uh, we've not recorded anything, and it's not been announced, so I don't want to spoil that, but definitely look for that coming up soon. Very and, cool. and you can find everything I just talked about at greatcrypton.com, which is my website, and that's where you'll find the back episodes of podcasts that I have been involved with and all kinds of good stuff. So. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Michael, once again for being my guest. Uh, thank you for having me on. You. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am disappointed we didn't talk about the tarantula story. <laughs> but Okay, folks, time for one more promo break. After that, I'll address the listener feedback from last episode. Don't go away. After the theatrical cartoons, after the movie serials, a new medium helped define an icon for generations to come. The Adventures of Superman. Join Mike Zumo as the Man of Screen podcast enters the next phase with a year-long look at the 1950s television series The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves as Clark Kent and Superman. No comment until the time limit is up. Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane during Season 1. What are you afraid of? What are you hiding? And Noel Neal as Lois Lane starting in Season 2. Why did you wait? Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. Mr. Kent is Superman. John Hamilton as Perry White. Don't call me Chief! And Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. I don't want excuses, I want action. So, follow along Mike and some possible guest hosts for an in-depth analysis of The Adventures of Superman, starting in June at supermanpodcastnetwork.com and manofscreen.podomatic.com. This is a job for Superman. I mean, I've got to find it. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from The 13th Dimension, Aaron Henley, Ange, Bass Levesque, BoldOutlaw.com, Browncoat Tor, Closeout Comics, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Comic Reflections, D at Dinosaur No One, Daniel Rust, Doc Jones, DS and RS, Film and Water Podcast, Gabriel M. Cox, Id Sanity, Jacob Edwards, Jason Morris, Justice's First Dawn, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Mark Baker Wright, Max Romero, NJ Strong, Paul Kinsey, Pod Dylan, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Tony Wolf, Treasury Comics, Warlock Thanos Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. New Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Henley, Abel Padilla, Alan Wright, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics, David Foster, Edward Johnson, Grant Richter, H. Daniel Reibold, Jared West, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Kalel Kamandi, Leslie Trigg, Martin Gray, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, Scott Rowland, Sean Emmons, Sean Strawbridge, Siskoid, The Irredeemable Shag, and Zoom Yukonori. Moving on to the website comments, that website of course being fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, I got plenty of great comments, and the first one comes from my best British friend currently residing in Scotland, Martin Gray, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. On the last episode, I complained, though it was a minor complaint, that Black Canary was fighting a man-bear and a werewolf in two consecutive stories, and I thought that was kind of weird. Martin said, I'm good with Dinah fighting were-creatures for a few short issues. I get seriously bored, for example, when heroes encounter the same kind of villains every month. Let's mix it up some. Well, I would agree with you, Martin, because I like werewolves, and I like it when heroes do mix it up, as you say. The problem is this isn't really an example of mixing it up because Black Canary up to this point didn't have a rogues gallery to speak of. She didn't have a stable of recurring villains in the kung fu or private detective milieu that she fits into. So the man, bear, and werewolf weren't mixing it up. They were her status quo for three months. 
And that's what kind of felt weird. Uh, the next comment came from Chris Franklin, my partner on Batman Nightcast and the host of Supermates and the Power Records podcast. Chris said, cheesecake for breakfast? Yes, please. I don't feel bad about ogling Dinah here, as Conway and Nasser portray her as a powerful, self-reliant woman, so she's more than just a sex object. That makes it okay, in my mind, at least. Well, that's how I justify it, too. Besides, the very next issue helped confirm my sexual orientation at age two and a half, seriously, so I have a soft spot for this story, even though I've never read this part. I really don't have a problem with Dinah versus Were creatures. I get what you're saying, but I think a bit of variety is a good thing, and I think the hero should sometimes be out of their league and into a different realm of adversaries. Besides, Dinah was a card-carrying, nearly-in-every-issue JLA member at this point, so she'd seen some seriously weird shit. <laughs> and David Ace Gutierrez replied to Chris's comment that he loved Dinah too, specifically because of this story arc. Uh, Rob Kelly from Treasury Cast, Digest Cast, Film and Water, Fire and Water, Pod Dylan, Who's Who, and Power Records. See, I took the time to list all of Rob's shows here on the network because he gets me. Rob said, It is sort of remarkable that writers for Black Canary solo stories didn't try to come up with more female-driven foes for Dinah to fight. Not to be too shag about it, but having two spandex-clad women fighting each other seems like a recipe for sales success, especially when your audience is pre- and mid-adolescent boys. Instead, we get Canary fighting giant man-bear? Uh, okay. Exactly. I don't know if Black Canary got a real female rogue of her own until Detective Comics 554, when she fought an arsonist named Bonfire. I guess she does fight anti-gravity later in this World's Finest series. And then there was the ghost-like character Blind from Black Canary series in the 90s, but still, that's only like three women really spread out over three decades. For comparison's sake, that's only one more female supervillain than Were Monster she fought in the same time period. Uh, then Rob said, We rarely see superheroes clean up after their fights, yet Black Canary is always stripping down to freshen up. Must be a coincidence. Hmm, must be, yeah. And he concluded with, F*** Jason Chaffetz. Ah, giving me a new target, Rob, but I agree. F*** Jason Chaffetz. I hope the people of Utah murder him in 2018. Electorally speaking, that is. Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, Another great issue, Nasser and Austin are just spectacular. And yes, Dinah looks gorgeous. I will say that at the same time in Superman Family, Wynn Mortimer was also doing peekaboo scenes of Linda Danvers undressing, but with far less, mm-hmm, effect. Could this be an editorial fiat from the top levels? I was going to speculate that all of the editors at DC Comics went out and saw Animal House and then decided, hey, we need more pervy scenes of women undressing. But Animal House came out the year after this issue of World's Finest, so I guess they came to that same decision after watching Star Wars. Hmm. Anyway, Inge says, As for the villains, I wonder if editorial worried boys would skip over the girl story and so added cheesecake and monsters. Dinah shedding her negligee to get into the shower? Good. Werewolves? Good. Dinah shedding her negligee to get into the shower and werewolves? That's two great tastes that taste great together. Exponential, not additive. <laughs> Good use of some uh, numeric terminology there, Doc. The Irredeemable Shag, also known as my BFF, which does not mean what you think it means. Oh, don't worry. When you're above money, personal relationships become your currency. Tracy and I have become uh, quite close. Look, we got BFF bracelets. You guys are best friends forever? That's not what that stands for. Why would you celebrate that? Shag said, wow, that's some seriously sexy Dinah. She's hot. 
Then, after fulfilling his contractually obligatory catchphrase, Shag said, I don't have the same attachment to Slingshot that Ryan does, so the subplot development didn't bother me. However, now I want a Slingshot and Slipknot team-up. That would actually be awesome. Slingshot and Slipknot together against Green Arrow? Or Green Arrow and Black Canary? Hells yeah. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, I love the way the Green Arrow and Black Canary stories are done in this run of World's Finest. Separate, yet linked, and with the same creative teams in place. Looking forward to the next episode showcasing these stories. Well, that's coming next episode, Jimmy. You will see this story wrap up in a way that continues to link the two stories. After that, though, sometimes the Green Arrow and Black Canary stories are completely separate, and sometimes they're basically the co-stars of a 20-page story. Uh, the next comment came from Dishwater Danny, who said, My comment isn't necessarily relevant to this episode, but I just thought you would like to know, when I was a little boy and any time I read a comic with Zatanna, I would always read it with a mirror so I could look and see what she said backwards. Hmm, that's a good strategy, Danny, but because the individual letters were still printed the correct way on the comic, wouldn't those letters appear backwards in the mirror? Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, There still hasn't been a Fire and Water episode covering the Manhunter from Mars backup strip by Mike Nasser, and given the lack of Aquaman or Firestorm, I'm not sure why there would be. It would even be a stretch for a zany Haney story, since Denny O'Neill wrote all but the concluding chapter. It's funny how Michael Netzer contacted me years ago to help spearhead a movement for him to draw John Jones again, seeing as he produced a lot more Black Canary pages, and to my mind is more identified with that character. They weren't Jerry Conway in his finest Form, but I'd still argue those were the superior scripts as well. He was great on Green Arrow too, and it's funny that thanks to the evolution of Ali's costume, Slingshot would be a more distinctive villain for him today than he was in the 70s. Well, Frank, if Fire and Water doesn't cover those Martian Manhunter stories from Adventure Comics 449 to 451, and if you're not doing it on the Idlehead, you might have heard we've got this new venue called FW Presents, which is a showcase for us to play outside our traditional sandboxes. If I could get my hands on those Martian Manhunter stories, I would be all over covering them on an episode of that podcast. Uh, Frank went on to comment on Justice League of America 87, and then responded to my rebuttal of his attack on my recycling used audio for the replay segments. He said, After I gave you shade for rerunning material, and you called me out on hypocrisy, you then gave me a free plug. Rewarding bad behavior is exactly how a Donald Trump happens, and that makes you part of the problem. You might as well just read my ad copy verbatim, for probably the greatest podcast of all time on the Rolled Spine feed. And this is me, Ryan Daly, whose own Secret Origins podcast is not yet a distant memory, saying this as I heartily endorse the Rolled Spine brand as another way of showing resistance. Hang on, what the hell just happened there? Siskoid from the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, Oh Hotmoo or Not, Gimme That Star Trek, and First Strike the Invasion podcast, said, Well, I'd say since Canary is an animal, she should be allowed to fight animal-based villains, like Spider-Man. Yeah, I'm not convincing myself either. I also wanted to say, you went political! Oh no! While discussing Green Arrow comics, the right wing is going to say that's inappropriate, because they've apparently never read a Green Arrow comic. Oh, God. This morning I heard on the news, one of the fake news channels, that Donald Trump's aides regulate his social media feed so that he is constantly being exposed to praise for himself, and that those exact same aides are terrified of the president being alone for any stretch of time, because that is when he goes off the reservation and posts stupid shit on Twitter that gets him into trouble. Our president has to be treated like a special needs child. That, that can't scare just me, right? 
The last comment came from Bradley Null, who said, A quick comment about bears and wolves being very different. Both share a common ancestor, creatively named the Bear Dog. They have similar features and facial expressions. They are not that different. I have stated in the past that I think humans would have a hard time telling a bear man from a wolf man for this reason. I've actually had to defend this position multiple times while role-playing. Anywho, great episode. Well, Bradley didn't specify, but I'm going to assume he meant playing a role-playing game and not that he was role-playing or acting out the part of a wolfman or bear man. But, yeah, whatever. Either way, thank you, Bradley, for that comment. Thank you to everyone who promoted the show on social media like Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to everyone who left a comment on the Fire & Water website. Haven't gotten any new iTunes reviews in a while, and I don't mean to play the guilt card on you, but if you listen to this show for free and you don't give it an iTunes review, you're basically the worst kind of human being, I'm just saying. Anyway, next episode, which will probably be in two weeks, will cover the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories from World's Finest 247. That wraps up the Man-Bear, Man-Wolf, Man-Bear-Pig storyline. The next time I talk about Zatanna, though, that episode will be similar to this one because she also makes a tiny appearance in World's Finest 208, which was not a Superman and Batman adventure, but rather a Superman and Doctor Fate story. And I think I'm going to have a guest host for that one, too. Anyway, that's all for now. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed in this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Iva Isin Yad. Thanks for listening.